Well, good morning, everybody. It's so wonderful to see you here this morning. Can I just share uh, personally, uh, you know, this series that we've been going through, Serving King, uh, the Gospel of Mark. For me personally, uh, it's been probably one of the most impactful series that I've uh, studied, that I've prepared for. Uh, What God's been teaching me each week through this gospel, it's really nothing short of uh, remarkable. Because there's so much that I'm learning. And I've been in ministry, ministry for many, many years. And uh, God's teaching me things that, well, you know, I just didn't know before. And I think that uh, my hope is that you have been growing through this series. And we still have a number of weeks to go, but I just wanted to share that. For me personally, every week that, you know, I get to prepare, that Pastor Lucas to prepare, uh, I get excited not because it's an easy uh, book, but because God's got so much that he wants to teach us uh, to grow, to be transformed so that we can look more like Jesus. And so I want to pause and pray and ask that God would be in our midst as we open up to Mark chapter 12. Father, we come before you and we ask, God, that as we open your word yet again to the gospel of Mark, that you would teach us in a way that would transform our lives through this amazing gospel, so that we would be more like Jesus every day. We pray in his name. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Jesus, the Rejected Stone. Jesus, the Rejected Stone. And we started off with that chorus early today in our first song. Last week, we entered the third and final act of Mark's gospel. For those who may be newer to this series, Mark has laid out for us three acts in his gospel, three distinct acts. The first act took place between chapters 1 and 8a, and that took place in a region known as Galilee. And in Act 1, the crowds, they follow Jesus. They marvel at all of his miracles. They see him heal people. They see him cast out impure spirits. They're amazed. And so they ask themselves a question. And what's that question? Who is this Jesus? They marvel at his works. That's Act 1. Act 2 took place on the way from Galilee to the city of Jerusalem. And Act 2 took place between chapters 8b and 10. And in Act 2, there was another question that was asked, but it was not asked by the crowds. It was asked by whom? The disciples. And the question they asked was, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And the answer to that question had implications for their own lives. That's why they wrestled with that question. It was a struggle for them. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? That was Act 2. Last Sunday, we entered Act 3. Act 3 takes place between chapters 11 and 16. And the focus of Act 3 is on the paradox of Jesus becoming King. And now that we've entered the third and final act of Mark's gospel, it'll be helpful for us to know this. The entirety of Act 3, chapters 11 through 16, 
takes place in the span of one week. That's it. One week, chapters 11 through 16. And it began on the Sunday when Jesus made his entrance into Jerusalem. And Pastor Luke spoke about that last Sunday. That Sunday that Jesus entered in Jerusalem, we often refer to as Palm Sunday. And the one-week period between Sunday to Sunday, his entrance into Jerusalem, to his death on Friday, and then to his resurrection on Sunday, that's known as Holy Week. It's also known as Passion Week. Have you heard of the term Passion Week? And some of you might wonder, well, why do they call it Passion Week, that one week? Well, the reason why they call it Passion is because that's taken from a Latin word. And in that context, that Latin word is translated or described as endurance or suffering. So Passion Week is a week of suffering. Jesus was humiliated by his enemies. He suffered an unimaginable pain and ultimate death so that you and I could have eternal life. On that Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday, he rode in on the colt of a donkey. As he rode into Jerusalem, the crowds lined the streets, right? These are the crowds who asked the question, who is this Jesus? They're amazed. So they lined the crowd, they lined the, the parade route, and they're shouting, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, please save Jesus. Save us now. And as they're shouting, they're throwing their garments onto the ground, for him to walk, or for the colt to walk on, they, they line the streets with palm branches. This is a celebratory parade as far as the crowds are concerned. You see, because their king is finally making his entrance into Jerusalem. The long-awaited king who would be their political leader to lead a revolt against the oppressive Roman government. That's what the crowds were waiting for. That's who they came to see, their military political leader. But as Jesus rode down the streets on that colt, his heart was heavy. His heart was heavy because he knew that those shouts of Hosanna would soon turn to jeers of crucify him. Crucify him before the end of the week. So that was Palm Sunday. The next day on Monday of Passion Week, Jesus cursed the fig tree. Pastor Luke taught us that last Sunday. And then after he cursed the fig tree, Jesus entered the temple and he overturned the tables because the religious community used the house of prayer as a den of thieves. The religious leaders were taking advantage of people, and they turned God's house into a place for their own personal gain. And so Jesus overturned the tables. 
That was Monday. And at the end of that time, it was then, on Monday, that the religious leaders, they started to plot to kill Jesus. But they were afraid of Jesus because the crowds were still amazed at Jesus. So they held off. So now comes Tuesday. Tuesday of Passion Week. And on that Tuesday, Jesus tells a parable that will indict the religious leaders. And at the same time, it will add fuel to their already growing hatred of Jesus. So today, we're going to look at that parable. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, this is not an easy parable to read, to hear, to understand, and ultimately to apply. But here's what God's Word has to share with us in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read to you the entire passage for today, starting in verse 1 all the way down through verse 12. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 1. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the end of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmer said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This parable is part of the very conversation that Jesus had with the religious leaders in chapter 11. And so last week when Pastor Luke took us through chapter 11, chapter 11 concluded with the religious leaders challenging Jesus' authority. And here Jesus responds and he begins teaching the religious leaders, the religious community, as well as the crowds, anybody within earshot. He starts teaching them with stories or parables. 
This parable begins with a man who plants a vineyard. Right away, when Jesus starts this parable, right away, the religious leaders, they take notice. Because Jesus said, vineyard. And they were very familiar with vineyards in that region. You know, here in California, we're well acquainted with vineyards, right? Uh, we have places like Napa Valley, places like Paso Robles, down to the Santa Barbara wine country. And, you know, our son Andrew graduated from UC Santa Cruz. Our daughter Amanda goes to school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So over the years, we've passed many, many vineyards and wineries going to visit our kids. So we're well acquainted with vineyards and wineries here in California. Did you know that, amongst other things, California shares a couple very important things in common with Israel? Two in particular. California and Israel are very similar in geography and also climate. So it's no wonder that Israel has many wineries. In fact, today there are over 300 wineries in Israel. Graves have played a huge role in Israel's history. And so when Jesus says a man planted a vineyard right away, everybody knew what he was talking about. Oh, a vineyard. This man protects the vineyard, builds a wall, builds a watchtower, and then he leases out the vineyard to tenant farmers. This was common back then. Owners who owned land, they would build on the land, and then they would rent it out to tenants, farmers who would take care of the land. And this was a great agreement because for the farmers, they could grow their own crops, they keep most of it, and they'd give a portion to the owner. The owner was making money, so they both made money. So it was a wonderful agreement. You see, the, the farmers, they weren't hired help. There's a difference, right? They're leasing the land. So they keep much of the produce, and they give some to the owner. And so that's the agreement. The owner goes away to a distant country. Now it's harvest time. So the owner sends a servant to pick up rent. At this point, the tenant farmers, they realize, you know what? Yes, we make good money, but we can make more. So they're not satisfied. They're greedy. So the first servant comes, and the farmers beat him up, send him back empty-handed. The owner sends another servant. This time, the farmers beat him and kick him in the head and send him back empty-handed. The third servant who is sent is not only beaten, he is killed. Now, this is a graphic, graphic parable. If you've ever seen a video of a brutal attack, like a real attack, it's sickening to the stomach. That's the kind of parable that Jesus is telling. The third servant is killed. And so the owner sends one servant after another, after another, after another. They're either killed or beaten up until there are no more servants and there's only one to send, his son. 
And the passage says that he sends his dearly loved son, the son he loved dearly. In other translations, it's translated his beloved son. So this owner sent his beloved son. The word beloved is synonymous with the word only. So the owner sent his only son to collect rent. Surely they will respect my son, he thought. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and then get the estate for ourselves. You see, in their minds, they're thinking, once they saw the heir, they're thinking, the owner must be dead. Because at that time, the owner would never, ever send a family member to do such a menial task. So they're thinking, wow, the owner must have died. The heir is coming to collect. So if we kill the heir, then we get everything. So the parable says that they murder him and they throw his body out of the vineyard. At this point, Jesus pauses and he asks the religious leaders a question. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? And before they could answer, Jesus supplies the answer. He says, I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. You can imagine the silence that came over that group listening to this parable. The religious leaders and the larger crowds. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. You see, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he spoke a lot in parables. And the reality was many of those parables were kind of confusing to most people unless they had ears to hear or eyes to see. So a lot of people were confused by his parables. This one was not one of them. This one was as plain as day. They knew what Jesus was saying. And the religious leaders knew that they were the wicked farmers. Now, to fully understand this parable, we need to go back several hundred years earlier to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. So I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. And in a minute, I'm going to read to you verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 5, as you make your way there, just want to let you know that Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is actually writing the lyrics to a song about the Lord's vineyard. And when we see in Isaiah 5 verses 1 and 2, when we see the pronouns I or my, it's Isaiah speaking. When we see the pronouns he or him, it's the Lord, the God of Israel. So let's begin in Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Now I, Isaiah, will sing for the one I love a song about his 
God's vineyard. Watch this. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared the stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now keep your place here. Keep your place here in Isaiah 5 because we'll come back and read a few more verses. When Jesus told his parable in Mark 12, he was building on the storyline of Isaiah 5, which was written 700 years prior to Jesus' life on earth. Isaiah lived 700 years before the birth of Christ. And in Jesus' parable, the beloved is who? Himself, right? He's the beloved only son. In Isaiah's song in chapter 5 of Isaiah, the beloved is God, the God of Israel, the only God of Israel. But the vineyard in both, the vineyard in Jesus' parable, in Isaiah's song, is the people of God, the nation of Israel. Now I'm going to read to you verses 3 and 4 in Isaiah 5. And now it transitions from Isaiah talking to now God speaking. And he says this in verse 3, Now you, people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God's people, God's chosen and holy one, they disobeyed God time and time again, and they did not live according to their holy calling. And so time and time again, here's what happened. God would send servant after servant after servant to call them to repentance. Those servants were the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Prophets like Hosea and Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And I've only named the prophets that have books named after them. There were many more prophets that God sent to call his people to repentance. And these prophets were not popular. In fact, you know, Jeremiah, he was called the weeping prophet. He was called the weeping prophet because he wept bitterly over the sin of God's people. Now, it's one thing to not be popular. It's a whole other thing to be beaten and killed. Many of these prophets were beaten. Many of them were killed, just like the servants in Jesus' parable. Church, God is a patient God. He is a long-suffering God. Prophet after prophet was sent to call the people to repentance, but they would not listen. And the worst of the offenders were the leaders. 
the religious leaders of God's people. Not only would they not listen, the religious leaders would use people for their own advantage. Instead of taking care of God's people, they began to use God's people. I want us to return now to Mark 12. And look at verses 10 through 12 one more time. And this is Jesus talking to the religious leaders. He says this, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. In verse 10, Jesus, he, he challenges the religious leaders. Okay, these are the religious experts. And he says, don't you know your scriptures? Don't you know your scriptures? He then does something amazing, okay? He uses their scripture, okay? So he quotes from Psalm 118. It's an amazing passage. Turn to 118, Psalm 118. I'm going to read to you verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118. This is what Jesus quotes to the religious leaders. In verse 22, he says this, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Jesus quotes their own scriptures. Now, keep your place here in Psalm 118, because we're going to read another verse in just a minute. In telling his parable, Jesus refers back to Psalm 118, and he lets the religious leaders know that he, he's the rejected stone. And that the rejected stone has now become the cornerstone. In ancient times, builders would look at a pile of stones as they're constructing a building. And they would look at this, this pile of stones, this massive pile of stones, and they would search for the one stone that would serve as the cornerstone, the foundation of the entire building. So the builder would take one stone after another from the pile and reject it and reject it and reject it until they found the perfect stone. When Jesus was speaking this parable to the religious leaders, the religious leaders were staring the cornerstone in the eyes. And yet they failed to see him because of their pride. The cornerstone was staring them right in the face. They failed to see the cornerstone because Jesus threatened everything that they stood for. And so they hated him. Now, there's a remarkable phrase in Psalm 118, verse 25, that we might miss 
since we're not like native Hebrew uh, readers, most of us, I imagine. So you might miss it, but take a look at verse 25, Psalm 118. It says this, Please, Lord, save. Please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. We said earlier that Hosanna means please save, save now. And what did the crowds yell when Jesus entered Jerusalem? Hosanna. And what did they yell not a week later? Crucify him. God chose to send his beloved son, his only son, to die on the cross for you and me. Here's the paradox of Jesus becoming king. Here's the paradox. The paradox is the heir to the throne was sent as a servant to die on the cross so that you and I might have access to the kingdom. That's the paradox. The heir to the throne, the throne was rightfully his, was sent as a slave, a servant, to die on the cross so that you and I might have access to the kingdom. The religious leaders, they failed to see this. We don't want to make the same mistake here, church. We do not want to make the same mistake. Did you know that throughout his ministry, Jesus reserved the harshest rebuke for the religious community? Jesus' harshest rebuke was always for those in the religious community and especially the religious leaders. I got to tell you, that is convicting. If that, doesn't, if that doesn't scare us leaders, I don't know what will. For all of you leaders who teach, who oversee, who lead, Jesus' harshest rebuke was for those religious leaders. So what's the application for us today? There are many. But as we go forward this week, I want to make this very practical. I want to share with you four things that you and I are called to do. Four things that God calls us to do today in 2022. The week beginning August 14th. This is what God's calling us to do. Four things. And by the way, as I share these four things, what you're going to notice is this. The religious leaders failed to do these four things. So please, we do not want to make the same mistakes. The first thing that God calls us to do is this. God calls us to repentance. It begins with repentance. And what does it mean to repent? It means to, to change the way we think. Another way to put it is repentance is to uh, come to our senses. Think back to a bad decision you made or maybe a series of bad decisions. At some point, did you ever ask yourself, what was I thinking? You made a bad decision. And you go, 
what was I thinking? Now, I'm not talking about honest mistakes. We all make honest mistakes. I'm talking about the willful decision to do wrong. We've all been there. We've deliberately disobeyed God. And then we say, what was I thinking? That's repenting. We change the way we think. And God calls us to change and return back to him. You know, way back at the beginning of our series, we were introduced to the forerunner to Jesus. Do you know who the forerunner, who was the forerunner to Jesus? Anybody? John the Baptist. He was the forerunner to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, he was also a prophet. One of the many in the line of prophets. In his case, he died a prophet. And back in March, at the beginning of our series, way back in March, in chapter 1, in verse 15, this is what we read. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time promised by God has come at last. He announced. He being John the Baptist. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now the good news is this. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. All of our sins here. And the good news is this, church. If there are some here today, right now, who would like to begin a relationship with Jesus right now, it can begin with a prayer like this. And you can say it right where you're seated. If you would like to begin a life with Christ right now, it begins with a prayer like this. You just say it under your breath. Please, Lord, save me. I want to turn from my sinful ways and follow Jesus. It begins with repentance. Please, Lord, save me. I want to turn from my wrong way of life and follow Jesus. Now, maybe there are many of you here today, you gave your life to Jesus years and years ago. So you are a Christian, but maybe it's possible that you have not been walking with Jesus. Maybe you're very far from Jesus. Maybe today is the day that you come back to him and you return to him like the prodigal, the son who came back. God wants to do so much more in your life and my life. Do you know that? God wants to do so much more in our lives. And can I say this? God wants to do so much more in the life of our church. So much more. And the one thing, the one thing that stands between us and God doing much more in our lives individually and corporately, the one thing is sin. That's the one thing. God's calling us to repentance. Secondly, God calls us to act justly, to do what is right. Earlier, we read from Isaiah chapter 5. Another prophet who lived during the time that Isaiah lived was a prophet by the name of Micah. They were contemporaries. 
And if you were to read Micah's book and Isaiah's book, they parallel each other. They talk about so many of the same issues that they faced back then. And the number one issue that both Isaiah and Micah faced, the number one issue was the issue of injustice. Injustice was everywhere. People were taking advantage of other people. People were benefiting at the expense of other people. People were discriminating against some and showing favoritism toward others. And in Micah's day, those people who were discriminating against others, taking advantage of them, they thought this. They thought, you know what? All I have to do to get back on God's good side is to give him a bigger offering. If I just give him a bigger, fatter offering, he'll forgive me. This is what Micah has to say to them. In Micah 6, starting in verse 6, this is what Micah says. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we even sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No. Oh, people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do right is to act justly. To act justly is just another way of saying, now get ready, love your neighbor as yourself. So when you see the phrase act justly, what it means is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. That's why James in the New Testament, he refers to the royal law. He says, if you keep the royal law, you're doing good. But if you show favoritism, you've broken the law. Injustice is everything that the royal law is not. Now, here's a question for all of us to ponder. Does my heart look more like the heart of the religious leaders in Mark 12 than the heart of Jesus? That's the question to consider. Does my heart look more like the heart of the religious leaders than the heart of Jesus? When we look at the life of Jesus here on earth, what did it look like? Well, here's what it looked like. He advocated for the poor the marginalized, the outcasts, and the exploited. Do you want to know a practical way to apply justice in our own context this coming week? Here's how. And I'm going to begin with a rhetorical question. So don't answer. Who here does not like to give themselves the benefit of the doubt? Nobody, right? We all like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We all 
like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I love taking my own side in an argument. I love it. I love taking my own side in an argument. We like to rationalize and justify our own behavior. The royal law is this. Take everything we like to do for ourselves and do it for the other person. So when the Bible talks about justice and injustice, it's not referring to the self. You see, today, we think, oh, justice. We have to fight for justice. We're always thinking of me in mind, right? Or my group in mind. When the Bible talks about justice and doing what is right, it's always talking about the other. And so for us today as followers of Christ, to act justly is to do what Jesus did. To advocate for the marginalized, the poor, the outcast, the mistreated. Not for ourselves. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, we seek the best for them. And let's face it, it's a lot easier to love those who are like us, those who look like us, think like us, live like us. It's so easy. How we treat those who are so different from us that tells us so much more about our character. That's what God's calling us to do, to act justly. Thirdly, God calls us to love mercy. God calls us to love mercy. In the Old Testament, God's mercy was defined as his loyal and his unchanging love. He loves us compassionately. He loves us faithfully. And he calls us to extend that same love to those around us. You know, all too often in the body of Christ, it's, it's easy for us to be at odds with others in the body of Christ. And when that happens, here's the tendency. Here's the progression. When we're at odds with somebody, what happens is usually we initially we ignore the problem. And we think if we ignore it long enough, it'll just go away. But then when it doesn't go away, here's what happens next. We ignore the person. So we just completely ignore the person, but at the same time, we run to those who like us. So we ignore the person we're at odds with, and we run to the people who are going to pat us and say, yes, yes, you're right, you're right, that person's wrong. And so then what happens ultimately is this. Then eventually the problem grows so big that it starts to impact the entire body of Christ. And before you know it, you have division. And did you know that it's very possible to be part of the same body of Christ and yet have divisions? As followers of Jesus Christ, we must remember that we are on the same side. We are on the same side. The next time we find it difficult to get along with somebody within the body of Christ, just remind ourselves that God's mercy toward us calls us to extend that mercy to them. And finally, God calls us to walk humbly with him. 
God calls us to walk humbly with him. And of all the things that God calls us to do this week, I'm going to say it right now, this will be the most difficult one. Because pride is a barrier to repentance. Pride is the barrier to acting justly. Pride is a barrier to extending God's mercy. Pride's the biggest barrier to spiritual effectiveness because pride, it causes us to focus on self. Am I being treated fairly? Are my needs getting met? Those are the questions that enter our minds. And pride says, no, you're not being treated fairly. Do something about it. No, your needs are not getting met. Go somewhere else where they'll get met. Humility says no. Humility says look out for the interest of the other. And I say that this is the hardest thing to do. It is for me. It is absolutely the hardest thing for me to do. Because when you maybe are in an argument, when you're at odds, that's the last thing you want to do. That's why Micah, he rebuked the people. God does not want your offering. He does not want a bigger offering. He wants you to repent, to do what is right, to show his mercy, and to walk humbly with him. I believe that God has so much more in store for our church collectively. And I believe he wants so much more for your individual life. But I, as your pastor, we as part of our church, we must walk humbly. Otherwise, it won't happen. Can I just share something that I've been thinking about uh, this past week as I was preparing for this? And I'll close with this. Every now and then, I'll, I'll go and look through notes of old sermons of mine that I've preached 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And sometimes I look at those sermon notes and I go, I can't believe I preached that. <laughs> I hope they didn't take notes on that one. And I've changed a lot of my thinking over the years. But you know what? That's okay. Because if we're saying the same thing, the exact same thing that we said 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and all we're doing is throwing out rhetoric, then we're not growing. We become the religious community that just pats each other on the back in our own echo chambers. And God's word in Mark 12 tells us, don't be like the religious leaders. You take care. You take care of the people. Take care of the flock. And so thankfully, hopefully, I'm a better preacher now of God's word than I was five years ago and ten years ago because I'm understanding God's word more. 
And that's exciting for all of us as we learn God's word, that there's never a ceiling to growth. And that's what happens when we walk humbly with him. Pride doesn't allow us to grow. Humility does. So that's why I believe God has so much more for our church. And it starts with us repenting, doing what is right, showing God's mercy, and walking humbly with him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for Mark chapter 12. It's a very difficult parable. But it's your word. And thank you, God, that it speaks to us today as clearly as it did when Jesus told it to the religious leaders. Help us to heed your word, to apply it to our lives. Help us to be more like Jesus this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.